a Bible with you, then maybe somewhere in a pew around you or a pew behind you, there'll be one that says the story on top of it. It's going to be on page 855 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible uh, at home, then you're welcome to take that as our gift uh, from us to you. The only thing I ask in return is when you get home, take the first about five or six pages that are printed in glossy color paper, and if you would read through those when you get home, it'll give you an overview of what we believe this whole thing is really about, uh, the whole story, what we really believe that's about, and I would love it if you would take the time to read that when you get home, uh, but you can have it even if you decide you're not going to do that. As we turn to First Peter, I want to catch you up a little bit historically as what's going on here. So we have been uh, in the book of Acts for a little while, and we're actually going to take a break from the book of Acts. We've intentionally, this year, we will go through the whole book of Acts, the first century church, as the brand new believers really started to establish what church was. And, and so we, we've worked our way all the way up to when a, a young man named Stephen was martyred, uh, and then the, the believers started to disperse and, and live out Acts 1.8 uh, to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Persecution is starting to increase in the church. Peter is still the visible leader of the first century church. And we're going to look at that guy. We're going to look at Peter today. I want to take you to 1 Peter. And so for the next several weeks, we will step out of the book of Acts and look at what Peter says to people who are struggling. Because I don't know, I figure all of us at some point in our lives struggle. It's, it's, I think, pertinent to the book of Acts, to the point that we're at in the book of Acts where the believers are, are, are now starting to struggle. Because we've had a few salvations here in our church recently, and it's great to be a brand new believer, and we're going to have baptism next Sunday, and that's exciting. But eventually it does get difficult. You, you start to struggle with life, and things are not always easy, and you get discouraged, you get distracted, you, get, you feel defeated, and you even start to have doubts. And I want to take you to a moment in Peter's life when he had that and some things changed for him, and we see Peter change, and, and we see him write the book that we're going to start going through, First Peter, and I want to talk about what happened in him, how that came to be. And so, but I want to go all the way back into our history a little bit. This past Friday, I say our, our history, our, the history of our faith story. Uh, this past Friday, we did uh, a Passover supper. Many of us, we, we packed out the fellowship hall and we did a Passover supper together and, and enjoyed observing that where the Lord's Supper comes from. And that is a celebration of when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God through his mighty power, freed them from the bondage of slavery. And so it became this celebration amongst the Jewish people. that they would Every year they celebrate this and they remember this moment. And so, but see, they, they knew that something would happen. There was always this prophecy for them that someone would come and someone would deliver them. And they were looking to be rescued by this prophet. But then we see Moses shows up. He delivers them out of Egypt. The 10th plague is the one that, where the word Passover comes from. There were 10 plagues. In the 10th plague, God killed every firstborn child that didn't follow the instructions of taking a lamb, sacrificing a lamb, putting the blood over the doorpost and on the lentils, the sides of the door, and then the death would pass over that house because of the sacrifice of this lamb. And see, the way God works is this whole book is about him. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing 
is a story about. It's one story. It's why I want you to read those colored pages in the beginning of the book. It's one story about God's love for you and his, his unrelenting grace in pursuing you in the midst of your struggles to bring you back to him. And so when we hear the story of Passover and we celebrate that, we, look, we, we use that and look forward in that story to the Messiah that would come and be the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, that by his blood we would be made free. But see, so that happens and it's an amazing story. And then get to one of my favorite parts of the story, Exodus chapter 14. Don't turn there, but the Israelites get to the Red Sea and, and man, they think things have gotten worse and they even start to grumble and complain. Church people have been grumbling and complaining since the beginning. And they grumble and complain up against this Red Sea and they've got the Egyptian army behind them and they don't know what to do. And through Moses, God says, hey, chill out, calm down, be still. Cease striving and let the Lord fight for you. And then you've maybe seen the cinematic versions of this with the staff and the waters spread and they walk across and, and then their enemies are wiped away into the Red Sea and we see them redeemed. But ultimately, they're looking for one thing. They're looking for rest. They're looking to rest. And that rest was promised to them in something called the promised land. And so as they make their way from the Red Sea towards the promised land, they, they send some spies in to the promised land that God has given them and told them would be theirs. And the spies come back, 12 of them, 10 of them go, those guys are massive. And I'm not really sure that it's a wise idea for us to march in there and try to take their land. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, listen, here's the deal. The same God who delivered us from Egypt, the same God that delivered us through the Red Sea, that same God said this was ours, so I say we take it. But they voted by majority, and majority won, and everyone lost. And they didn't get the rest that they wanted, and so for 40 years they wandered, and finally the second generation has to fight their way into the promised land and never truly experience the rest that was promised. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Judges, you'll see this constant cycle of them serving God, honoring God, worshiping God, and then serving and honoring false gods and going another direction. And then, and then something bad happens and God gives them a judge and, and brings them back to himself again. And we go through cycle after cycle after cycle. And the book of Judges, listen to me, is an unbelievable testament to God's character, his patience, his mercy, and his grace. And it ought to be encouraging to you that the same people could over and over and over and over screw up and turn and go the wrong way. And God continually pursues them. So this is the beauty Of the God that we serve. I'm telling you, listen, I'm getting to a point, I'm telling you all this because in the Jewish people, there's always been this idea of finding rest. Just, and and when I mean rest, like just stillness in your soul, everything's okay. It really goes back to the word shalom in the garden, Adam and Eve, when everything was made whole in the way that was supposed to be. There's this idea, there's that longing in us for that. And so imagine you, you go f- as a Jewish person for 400 years of silence. You haven't heard anything from God. No one has spoken. No prophets have spoken up. And you're Peter. So I want you to imagine yourself as Peter for a minute. You're a fisherman. Your daddy was a fisherman. And you learned how to fish from him. And 
you probably don't hate it. Not necessarily in love with it, but you don't hate it. It's how you provide for your family. It's your identity in a sense. It's what you do. And so you go to work every day and you, you fish. And then you get word from your cousin that there's this guy from Nazareth. And he's stirring things up. And, and there's some possibility he may be the Messiah, the one that you've been waiting on, the one that would deliver rest. And you got to understand, if you're Peter, what that means in your mind is it's a socio-political military rest, peace. It's, in other words, they're under the thumb of Rome, and you're, you're hoping that this guy is going to show up and wreck shop, kick Rome out, bring the Israelites back into a place of prominence like you're certain they're supposed to be. And so you get word that this rabbi, this real unconventional, does things a little bit different, shaking things up. And I think if you're Peter, you may be a little bit of a rebel. And you kind of like that he shakes up the religious leaders. And so he comes and he says, follow me. Leave everything behind. And so you're Peter, right? Just imagine yourself for a moment. You're Peter. And so you go, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to throw all the chips in. I'm going to go all in with this guy. I'm going to give everything I've got. My life is going to be his. And so you literally leave everything behind. And you follow this man for three years of your life. And much of that three years is amazing. Unbelievable miracles. Unbelievable teaching. He speaks with this wisdom and authority like you've never heard in your life before. And you're enamored by this guy. He, he talks to lowly people with such dignity. He talks to women and children and the crippled and the sick and the poor in a way that no one else you've ever seen does. He doesn't separate himself from people. Even whenever you and your other friends think that he should, he seems to always put himself in these weird situations. And you start to become really taken by this guy that you're following. And then you're hanging out one day. And he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And some people say, well, some people say that I've heard you're, you're like Elijah or one of the prophets kind of returned. And when we were doing Passover, there's a part of Passover where you set a place for Elijah because there's this prophecy that Elijah would return around Passover in order to bring the Messiah and make the announcement of the Messiah. That's fulfilled in John the Baptist. But So you're, you're Peter, though, so you, you have that place at your table at Passover, and you're wondering, is this Elijah? And, and so you're, man, you're not really sure what you're feeling because a lot of times when you think you understand what's going on, he just says something really weird like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then a bunch of people leave and you go, why do you say things like that? But, but he says, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting on. And Jesus goes, you got it. As a matter of fact, you didn't even know that yourself. The Holy Spirit gave that to you. And all of a sudden, you're feeling like, that's right, I'm the man. I'm the guy that got it. Right? I've been following this guy for almost three years. I'm the guy that got it. And then Jesus says, but listen, here's how things are going to go down. And you're like, all right, where do we get our swords? Who do we cut off their head first? Where do we go charging? I'm ready to take over. Let's boot Rome out of here. And Jesus goes, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And the religious leaders are going to arrest me. 
and they're going to beat me and humiliate me. And then you're going to like rise up and throw them all down. No, 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 no. And then they're going to kill me. But three days later, I will rise. No, listen, you're Peter and you go, Jesus, listen, listen, listen. That's not how this needs to go down. As a matter of fact, I ain't letting that happen. Let them try to come at you. I'm going to stand between you and them. They're not, look, as long as I'm alive, nobody's taking you, Jesus. I'll die before you die. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. So you go from being the guy that got it right to the guy that got it really, really wrong. When Jesus calls you Satan, you've messed up. So you're Peter. And all this goes down, and he says, as a matter of fact, here's what's going to go down. When they go to kill me, three times before the cock even crows, three times, you're going to deny you even know me. What? Are you crazy? I would never deny I know you. I left everything I own, everything I am to follow you for three years. You're crazy. I would never, ever deny you. I would give my whole life to you, Jesus. I would die before you die. You'll deny me three times. So sure enough, what happens? He denies him three times in the midst of this illegal trial when Jesus is being humiliated and beaten and questioned. As a matter of fact, not even to like just scary people, right? We're not talking like, but like one is like a little girl. And he, and, he, and he denies that he even knows Jesus. And the, the scriptures even seem to tell us that him and Jesus kind of catch eye contact for a moment. You're Peter. Imagine what you're feeling in that moment. Man, I have screwed this up so bad. I, and now you're discouraged and you feel defeated. Because you know you screwed up, but you're also looking at the guy that you thought was the answer to everything. And it just seems like he's, it's just going to be done, like it's going to be over. The Bible says that they didn't, the disciples didn't get, even though Jesus told them, the disciples didn't get that he was going to raise from the dead. And so you're watching your world crumble. You're watching what you've given everything of your life over to fall to pieces. The one man you gave all your hope to, you're watching him be arrested and questioned and on trial. And you're pretty sure this is about to go really bad. As you watch from a distance, sure enough, it does. Most people were just put on a cross and not beaten beforehand. Jesus is beaten mercilessly with a beating that usually it would not be uncommon for people to die in the midst of this beating. It was so severe that ribs would be exposed. They took a crown of thorns and beat it into his face. And you know all this is happening. There's a part of you that goes, man, this is on me. I told him I wouldn't let this happen. He asked me to stay up and watch. He asked me to stay up and watch and pray. And I said, I wouldn't let this happen. I said, I would stand between him and the enemies. But when they did, I just acted like an idiot and cut a guy's ear off. And you're starting to question everything. You're discouraged. You're defeated. You've got doubts. J.D. Greer said, Peter... When he gets to walk into the tomb, 
He walks into that tomb, a discouraged, defeated doubter. But he walked out as the most important leader in the new Christian movement. From this point on, the disciples are going to look to Peter to lead them. Maybe today you are discouraged. Just with life in general. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you're here because it's Easter Sunday and that's the day you go to church. But you've got a lot of doubts. You don't really buy into this whole thing. I want you to put yourself in the place of Peter as he walks into that empty tomb. See, Peter and the disciples were hiding out in the upper room, scared of what the religious leaders may do to them. And, and then some women go to the tomb. In John chapter 20, some women go to the tomb and they, they find Jesus as a gardener, they think, and they talk to him. And he essentially says, <coughs> go and tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus knows that Peter has secluded himself, that he's discouraged. Jesus knows that he's discouraged and defeated and has doubts. Listen, Jesus, listen to me, knows that you're discouraged. He knows that you feel defeated. He knows that you've got doubts about this whole thing. But when you look at the character of Jesus today, I want you to encounter as much as you can what Jesus does, when he, what Peter does when he walks into an empty tomb. Because it's why we can see Peter become the man that he does. Peter walked into that place where there should have been the dead body of his hero, his rabbi. But it was empty. Stand with me as we read God's word. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through five. This is what Peter writes to people who are discouraged defeated and have doubts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would speak mightily to us. Lord, that we would bless you, we would praise you, because according to your great mercy, you offer us new life, you offer us living hope. And you rescue us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So what can we gain from an empty tomb? Now, I could spend a lot of time defending the resurrection, giving you logical arguments as to why I am convinced that the resurrection is a historical moment that actually happened in history, that this actually went down. But as I prayed about my message today, I didn't want to take up too much time doing that. And so I'll offer you this. There is a 
connect card in the pew in front of you. If you want to sit down and I buy you a cup of coffee and we talk about the, the evidence that is there, logical evidence that leads to proving that Jesus rose from the dead, I will be glad to sit down and discuss that with you in an intellectual way. And so take that connect card, write your name right away for me to get in touch with you. Let me know. You want to talk more about the resurrection, drop that in the offering plate and I will be more than happy to buy you a cup of coffee, buy you lunch, and talk to you about evidence for the resurrection. Short, short version of this is there is actually, by credible historians, very, very little question about the facts that Jesus was a man that led in a religious way in the Middle East during that time, that he was killed on a Roman crucifix, that he was put in a tomb, and that the tomb ended up empty. Those are historical facts that are not even disputed by people who don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that are credible historians. The question becomes, why was the tomb empty? And there's really only a few options. Why was the tomb empty? Maybe one, maybe somebody stole it. Short version of that, is this really improbable? For you to have done that, the amount of guarding of Romans that were around that tomb, you would have to be better than Ocean's Eleven to get in there. And the only people who would have the motive to do it would be the disciples. And we're pretty sure that they were hiding scared in an upper room. And if you've read the Gospels, they're not the brightest bunch in the world. And so I have little doubt in their ability to pull off that level of sophistication of a heist. We could go more into that when I buy you coffee one day. The second option is maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he himself got up and got out of the tomb and slipped past the guards and and escaped and he wasn't actually dead. I'll tell you that's almost as impressive as rising from the dead. When you consider that he was beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable, that he was stabbed in the heart, that he was pierced in his feet and pierced in his hands, that a crown of thorns was beaten into his face, it would be pretty impressive after that to be laying in a tomb with a huge heavy rock in front of it and Roman guards and move the tomb rock and slip past the guards That's still almost a guy worth worshiping, if that's what happened. Or there's the third option, that he actually rose from the dead. And so for the sake of today, if you would walk with me in that assumption that I am thoroughly convinced is reality. And what does Peter tell us? And what can we gain from an empty tomb? Because Peter, with discouragement Defeat and doubt walks into an empty tomb. And we go from a guy who was so wishy-washy. If you read the stories of Peter, we can all resonate with him because he has his high moments and he has his low moments. He's the guy who gets to walk on water, but he's also the guy that just a minute later almost drowns. He's the guy who gets it right and says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the sent one, but then just a couple of minutes later gets called Satan by Jesus He's the guy that falls asleep and then cuts a guy's ear off. He's the guy that denies Jesus. He's the guy who always speaks and then thinks. And we can resonate with that a little bit, this wishy-washiness of 
Peter. He's the guy who denies Jesus to a little girl. But then when we go through the book of Acts, there's this steadiness, this solidness, this boldness in the face of opposition, in the face of imprisonment and death and beatings. What does he do? He stands up to the religious leaders. And one of my favorite things in Acts chapter 4, when they start to tell him to stop talking about Jesus, he goes, look, I get that you guys are probably smarter than me. You got a little more education than I do. But Jesus rose from the dead. So you guys decide. Should I do what you say or should I do what God says? I'll let you guys figure that out. You guys are smarter than me. I mean, with such boldness, he stands before the religious leaders and says, not only that Jesus rose from the dead, not only was he murdered wrongly, but he points the finger and he says, you murdered Jesus. Like he wants to get a beating. What changes for Peter largely, I think, starts in this empty tomb. So what, what can we gain from an empty tomb? Look at verse 3. We can gain rescue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, or maybe even a better way to say that is He has given us new life. He has but caused, honestly, is a really good word because it's passive for us. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Everybody say living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So who is Peter writing this? So we know who Peter is. We've been talking about him. Who is he writing this letter to? He's writing this letter to followers of Christ who are undergoing unbelievable persecution. Most likely this is during the time of Nero. Now Nero was crazy. Nero did all kinds of insane things. Nero most likely set Rome on fire when he was in charge of Rome for his own entertainment. And then when everybody, for some reason, got upset about the fact that he set Rome on fire, he decided to blame it on the Christians, which gave him an opportunity to turn persecution, the the knob, all the way to 11. This is when you start throwing Christians into the arena with lions and... This is when he would take Christians and put them on crucifixes and light them on fire to light the path to his house. This is what Christians are undergoing in Rome. This is who Peter's writing to. After being subject to many beatings and imprisonments himself. So to a suffering people, he starts off with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the resurrection. Praise God in the midst of your suffering. Praise God in the midst of your discouragement and your defeat that He is who He is. This word used for blessed here is not the same word used in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. This is a word used exclusively for God in the New Testament. It's, it's a word in the Greek where we get the word eulogy from. And eulogy does not just mean a dirge or just mean something you speak at a funeral. The word technically means good words. We, we, when we speak at someone's funeral, we usually try to say good words about those people, right? We, we, we don't bring up the bad stories. We don't bring up the bad things. We stand up and we want to remember the 
good times. And that's why we call it a eulogy when we want to stand up and speak good words. But that word comes from the Greek word here when it says, blessed be God. The first thing we do when we walk into an empty tomb, I promise you, will be to praise God. When you have seen someone beaten beyond recognition, put on a cross, and you walk into an empty tomb, and all of a sudden you remember, you remember the day he called you Satan? He said, I will rise again three days later. You remember those times when he mentioned that all of a sudden finally starts to click for you. It finally starts to click for you. And listen, I promise you, in that moment, it'll overshadow everything else going on. In that moment, you're not scared of the religious leaders hunting you down. In that moment, you realize there are massive implications to the fact that Jesus is who he always said he was. And you'll praise God. You'll rejoice in the resurrection because you are rescued by his great mercy. Our salvation isn't a t- is a testament to God's great character. We don't have a calloused and distant God who just exercises exact judgments on us that are fair. And praise God that God is not fair. Amen? Because you need to understand that fair doesn't mean Him coming and dying on a cross for your sins. Fair means not bringing hostile enemies into his dinner table. Fair doesn't mean taking people who were once against him and bringing them into the family. Fair is not any of those things. And praise God that God is not fair. That he rescues us with great mercy. And then we are renewed to a living hope. Now, don't think of the word hope in the way we use the word hope. I hope the Jaguars win a Super Bowl in my lifetime. I hope. There is some level of probability to that. Maybe not high levels of probability, but some levels of probability that that could happen. And I hope that it does. I hope I could lose weight. I hope I don't get a ticket when I speed. I hope, right, we can hope for things that we create the hope within ourselves and so it has no actual life and there is no actual certainty. I remember a guy, he used to always tell me, I hope I win the lottery and I asked him, do you ever play? And he said, no. There's a very low level of probability. That is a dead hope. Jesus offers us a living hope. Hope. You got you to catch that word. Don't miss it. A living. Listen, this is hope with certainty. Peter, after discouragement and doubt and defeat, walks into an empty tomb and then writes a letter to those in Rome who are being unbelievably oppressed and persecuted and tells them they have a living, certain Hope, And I want to tell you today, no matter what your discouragements, no matter what your defeats, no matter, listen to me, no matter what your doubts, there is a living, certain hope available to you. Whether you believe it or not, it's there. 
whether you believe it or not, doesn't change whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or not. And I'm telling you, he did. And we can have that conversation over coffee, and I'd love to, but I'm telling you, for the sake of argument, follow with me today. He did raise from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, because the tomb is empty, there is a living, certain hope. 100% probability in Jesus There is a a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas, a professor of theology, uh, real smart guy, also a hockey coach, which is fun, and I've heard him speak on a few occasions, and he's been known for decades as one of the foremost uh, arguers, defenders of the resurrection. His writings on it are are the most widely uh, accepted and, and honored and revered on this subject of whether the resurrection actually happened or not. It's, the, it's kind of the one thing he's known for. If you ever hear that Dr. Gary Habermas is going to come speak somewhere, you can, with high probability, guess he's going to defend the authenticity, historicity of the resurrection in an intellectual way. Well, in 1995, his wife Debbie was dying of stomach cancer. What good was all his intellectual assent into this proving of the resurrection as his wife dies of cancer. And in a book called Case for Christ, Lee Strobel was interviewing him. And this is what he said to Lee Strobel. This was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Lee Strobel said he turned and looked straight at me. And this is what he said to Lee Strobel. But you know what was amazing? My students would call me not just one, but several of them. And they would say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as these circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, it was neat to see my students trying to cheer me up with my own teaching that I had given them. And second, it worked. It worked because it's true. It was a horrible and emotional time for me, but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone, but that wasn't, there wasn't a time when the the truth of the resurrection didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for 30 AD, and it's good for 1995, and it's good for right now, and it's good for beyond that. Least Trouble said, then Gary Habermas locked eyes with me. He said, that's not some sermon. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven If Jesus was raised, then my wife Debbie was raised, and I will be someday too, and then I'll see them both. What gets us through when we are faced with discouragement and doubt and defeatedness is holding on to spiritual realities, realities bigger than what we can see and hear and touch. Spiritual certainties, not mythological things and mystic deals, but the, the 
fact, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can give a living and certain hope like nothing else can. This is the main message of the book of 1 Peter. And it's certainly the theme of our passage today. And every Christian needs to hold on to the hope of heaven. Edmund Clowney and his commentary said, Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy, we live. The resurrection gives us hope through giving us an eternal perspective. It helps us realize that our hope is not here. Because listen, that shalom that was in the Garden of Eden, we don't get to experience it in fullness anymore. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation was subject to futility. It broke everything. Sin broke the world. It doesn't click right. The, the clock is never on the right time. Nothing ever clicks. You're missing four spark plugs. It just doesn't go the way it's supposed to go anymore. Because it's all broken by sin. It's why cancer exists. It's why mental illness exists. It's why affairs happen. It's why drug addictions happen. It's why selfishness and all these things happen. It's where defeatedness and discouragement and doubts come from. It's the brokenness of this world and our hope. Is a living hope. Also walking into an empty tomb, praise God, gives us redemption. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why do I say redemption here for this inheritance? Listen, because it's, un, it's insane that God would give us an inheritance. Wouldn't it be just enough when you study the Passover, there's this song you sing at Passover. We didn't do it Friday night where you list all these things that God has done and then you say, Deunu. Everybody say, Deunu. It means, wouldn't it be enough? And you start to list these things. And I would say, wouldn't it be enough, Deunu, if, if God had just forgiven our sins? Wouldn't that be enough if God said, you screwed this up, you messed up life, you've got a debt you can't pay for, your sins have earned you death, but I'll pay the price. What if that's all he did? It would be enough. But isn't it it insane? It's incredible that that's not where God leaves it. God doesn't just take us as hostile enemies, sinful, broken people and say, you're forgiven. No. He says... Come on in, son. Come on in, daughter. Everything I own will one day be yours. You'll inherit. You'll stand right next to Jesus. Romans chapter 8 tells us this. You'll stand right next to Jesus and get an inheritance. Romans chapter 8 also promises us suffering on this earth. But it says that the sufferings of this earth don't compare to what we're going to get in an inheritance. There's a story an old theologian tells of a young man, and I'm going to modernize it for you. Say, we'll pretend it's you. You get a phone call, and you've got this jalopy of a car, and you don't know how you're going to pay rent this month. And some of you are like, do you know my story? Well, no. I've lived it. But you get a phone call that you've got this rich third uncle you didn't know about in Seattle, Washington, 
And you go, man, it's a long way away. And if you'll just, if you can make it by Tuesday, you get the call right now. If you can make it by Tuesday at lunchtime, you will receive an inheritance of $8 billion. But you got to get there. So you get in your little jalopy of a car. You don't even worry about calling in to work. You don't need a job anymore. You start driving to Seattle. You get about five miles short of where you're supposed to go and sign this paperwork, and the car finally gives up. Smoke going up, everything. You got, you got about three hours to get there. There's no cars anywhere, so you get out and you start hoofing it. Right? And your feet are killing you five miles by the time you get there. You weren't dressed for, for running. You're not in shape. And so you get there and you're like, you're, you've got blisters on your feet. You're sweated through your clothes. But listen to me. Would you be complaining as you sign paperwork for $8 billion of an inheritance? No, you wouldn't be complaining. You would be looking at this hope of $8 billion and you'd go, I will throw these shoes and clothes away and I don't even care about that car. Send me a ticket. I'll pay it. And you would go straight to a car lot and buy whatever car you wanted. And then maybe you would have it delivered to your house and fly home on a private jet. I don't know what you'd do. But you certainly wouldn't be mad about the blisters on your feet, would you? See, the inheritance, when we, when we grasp the weight of the inheritance that God speaks of, then the sufferings in this world don't compare to what he has to offer us. See, think back to that rest that they hoped for in the promised land. And this is why Peter uses these words. He's not just being a, pe- uh, a preacher and being repetitive when he says imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Those are all words chosen on purpose. This inheritance is imperishable. The grapes don't go bad. Everything we love on this earth is on its way to a dumpster or a coffin. Everything. Everything you hold dear is deteriorating. But not that inheritance. Eight billion dollars pales in comparison to the inheritance that God offers. Jesus tells us about treasure that doesn't perish without it doesn't perish with moss or robbers can't steal. You can't have hope and treasure here on earth and in heaven. You've got to decide where your hope lies because it can't have you can't have all your hope here and there. The hope here is dying, but the hope in heaven is eternal. The Israelites wanders aliens and sojourners through the wilderness with the hope of an inheritance of the promised land. The Greek word here for imperishable gives us the sense of undecaying, undying. Not only will this inheritance never decay, it will never produce corruption in those who possess it. How many, how many people, when they win the lottery, things just go bad? Have you ever read about that? It usually doesn't actually end well, although we still think we're probably the exception. We think we would handle it correctly. This inheritance can't even corrupt you. It can't turn your family and friends against you. Not when you get there. It's undefiled. Everything we love and hold dear on this earth not only is decaying and on its way to the dumpster or the casket, but everything we love on this earth is tainted and defiled by sin. No one's hands are clean. 
No one came in here good enough to get to heaven on your own. Listen to me. No one came in here good enough. But this inheritance is undefiled. There is no sin. There is no weeping. There is no crying. There is no jail. There is no disease. It is also unfading. It never grows old. Has a sense of perpetual, inextinguishable. With this inheritance, we are redeemed by His blood. Like we said, we are redeemed from being an enemy to one with an inheritance. We are redeemed because there is an empty tomb. We are redeemed because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We are then reconciled to His table. We deserved death, and He offers us dinner. We deserve to be murdered, and He offers us adoption. We were received as a child, received as a son, received with hospitality, not the hostility that we deserve. There's a living hope that only Christ offers. And lastly, what do we get when we walk into a tomb? We get rest. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded means both protection from attack from the outside and escape from the inside. Here's what's really cool. Once you're adopted into his family, you can't screw it up. Isn't that great news? Isn't that amazing? That you would be an enemy of God, hostile against him, and he would redeem you as a child, as a son, and bring you to his family, and then say, not only that, I'm going to protect this inheritance. It's in my hands now. Because think back to the story of the Israelites. They were given the promised land, but because of their doubts the first time, they didn't go in. They messed it up. And then when they went in, it was so defiled by their worship of other gods, they never truly got to experience rest. And so eventually they were completely defeated and kicked out and never really got to experience what God had for them. Here's the great news about when we become a follower of Christ is once we become a follower of Christ, our doubts get handled by a loving and merciful God as he gently leads us through his word. In the, usually in the context of biblical community is where we best handle our doubts. Our defilement, where we will continually sin just like the Israelites, His blood is always good to pay the price. And He washes us clean and we are undefiled in our inheritance. And we cannot be defeated. In Romans chapter 8, it says we are more than conquerors for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from God's love? And it gives this long list. And in that list, guess what's included? You. You can't mess it up because it wasn't yours. It was God's gift. It was great mercy. It was his great grace that gave it to you. So today, I want to offer you an opportunity to rest in his power. Not yours, his. Maybe you came in here discouraged, defeated. Maybe you need the power of Christ in your life. Rest in his protection. Maybe you've got something that's mastering you. An addiction or depression. Some sort of 
sin that just holds on to you. And you feel so defeated. Maybe there's just a lot of failure in your life. Maybe you've got a low image of who you are. and You just feel defeated in your identity. Rest in His protection. And lastly, rest in His promises. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about entering into the rest of God. It talks about the promised land, the inheritance. Now that wasn't the final rest. The author of Hebrews tells us the promise of entering His rest still stands for us today. And we should strive to enter His rest. Here's the deal. We are going to take an opportunity to respond to God's Word here in a minute. We're going to sing some songs and I'll be up here. If you want to come talk to me about this, I'd love to talk to you. If you don't want to talk to me in this setting, uh, take one of those Connect cards I talked about before. Fill out enough information for me to be able to contact you. uh, And just put that you want to talk, that you want to know more, that you have questions, that you still got doubts, and, and you want to work through those. And I'd be glad to sit with you and work through those doubts with you. I don't have the answer to every question. I promise you, you will probably ask me questions that I'll say, I don't know. But let me look it up, see what I can find. I would encourage you to strive to enter his rest. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that offers a living hope. Lord, I pray that we would receive that living hope, that we would strive to rest in you, to cease striving to stop fighting, to stop trying to, by our own willpower, get through this world, but Lord, have an eternal perspective and realize that our 80, 90, 100 years on this earth pale in comparison to the inheritance offered to us if we would be adopted into your family. Lord, let us be rescued, redeemed. Let us rest in you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. If you would.